good evening, everybody. Um, I am Christine Kinkin. I'm the director of the Centre of Women, Peace and Security. And we are hosting this event tonight on gender equality, how can the United Nations lead? So, first of all, welcome, everybody. It's great to see so many of you. And so delighted to see you all this evening. Um, right, a couple of housekeeping announcements as always. Please silence phones. Uh, if you want to use Twitter, the hashtag is somewhere on this. That far corner? No, here. Right, right. Hashtag um, for using Twitter. And just to say as well that the event is being streamed on the LSE website and audio recording will be available online in due course. So, gender equality, can the United Nations lead? Uh, the UN Charter is committed to the prohibition of discrimination on the basis of sex and equality between women and men. So Article 8 of the United Nations Charter, an article that doesn't get read very often, I don't think, um, says that, quote, the United Nations shall place no restrictions on the eligibility of men and women to participate in any capacity and under conditions of equality in its principal and subsidiary organs. Um, okay, that's 1945. The reality has been, though, that the position of women, particularly within the Secretariat, has always been precarious. And so you have one former staff member in the Secretariat in the 1960s who called women an endangered species within the United Nations. Um, 50 years ago, just about 50 years ago, the General Assembly adopted for the first time a resolution on the subject that urged the United Nations to take appropriate measures to ensure equal opportunity for the employment of qualified women. In 1974, 1980 was set as the goal for the achievement of an equitable balance of men and women staff members in the Secretariat. So you can see this issue has been around for quite some time. And on taking office, the current new Secretary General, Mr. Antonio Guterres, made a commitment to reach parity at the senior level leadership positions by the end of 2021, and parity across the organization, quote, well before 2030. And he's launched a system-wide strategy on gender parity. And the new Secretary General has also pointed out that in the intervening years, there's been a plethora of policies, reports, recommendations, but progress has been hampered by the lack of sustained political will, lack of accountability, absence of required measures to make gender equality a reality, and resistance from key stakeholders, including, of course, member states. And it's not just within the UN bodies and the Secretariat where gender inequality has been prevalent, but also within processes and programs under the auspices of the United Nations. So in the particular field of women, peace and security, participation and representation in United Nations-led peace operations, for example, and in peace processes. So two real issues underlie all of this. Why does it matter? And how can the situation be redressed? So in fact, can the United Nations lead on this? So, to turn to the event tonight, um, it's being held as part of the United Nations Gender Network, which is a network which is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, bringing together academics, civil society, member states, and the UN Secretariat 
in a spirit of conversation and collaboration. The network aims to achieve a deeper understanding of the causes and impact of gender inequality with the United Nations and the impact this has on the leadership with respect, for example, the Sustainable Developing Goal, Development Goals and broader development policy. So we have a great panel, and a great panel that um, is representative of academic, civil society, and um, United Nations Secretariat. So to introduce the speakers first, each speaker will um, present for about 10 minutes or so, and then after the speakers have concluded, there'll be the usual question and answer um, time. So looking um, at the panel um, from the person nearest me is Aoife O'Donoghue. Um, Aoife is one of the leaders of the Gender Network in conjunction with Professor Rosa Friedman from the University of Reading. Aoife O'Donoghue is from the Durham Law School, her research focuses on public international law, in particular global governance, legal theory, and feminism, and in particular examining the interaction between international law and feminism, particularly within institutions such as the United Nations. Uh, next to Aoife is Rosalind Park. Rosalind is the Women's Human Rights Program Director at the Advocates for Human Rights and a member of the UN Gender Network. Her experience is in the area of human rights monitoring, violence against women, UN advocacy, and volunteer management. She served in, as an expert for NGOs, international governmental organizations, and foreign governments on women's human rights, and led monitoring missions in Bulgaria, Croatia, Serbia, Tajikistan, Mongolia, Montenegro. I'm sure this is just a representative list, and other places <laughs> as well. And she's also done advocacy before UN and charter-based human rights bodies. Next to Rosalind is Nave Pile, who we're especially delighted to welcome back to the London School of Economics. Um, Nave was the High Commissioner for Human Rights at the United Nations from 2008 to 2014. Before that, she was a judge at the International Criminal Court in The Hague and the first and only woman judge on the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. In 1995, that's after the end of apartheid in South Africa, she worked at the Supreme Court of South Africa as a limited-term judge, has championed many human rights issues, and has worked with numerous, and continues to do so, numerous human rights organizations. And then at the far end is Jane Connors, who we're also delighted to welcome back um, to the um, LSE. She's in the inaugural Victims' Rights Advocate for the United Nations, very recently created post, what, about six weeks ago? Mm -hmm. um, and an Assistant Secretary General, and also a visiting professor in practice at the Center for Women, Peace, and Security. Um, prior to that, she was the International Advocacy Director, Law and Policy at Amnesty International, um, previously worked at various institutions of the United Nations, including at the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Published widely on United Nations human rights mechanisms, and in particular the human rights of women and violence against women and children. So, as I said, it's a great panel, and so I'll turn over to Aoife to set it off. Ah, are we there? Ah. Right. <laughs> Um, 
Good evening, everybody, and I'd like to thank um, the LSE um, and the Centre for hosting us and agreeing to invite us and putting together such a wonderful panel. And thank you very much um, for welcoming us, and, um, and thank you all for coming as well on such a, uh, a cold London evening. So, um, together with uh, Rosa Friedman, um, we're the director of the UN Gender Network. So, our project has been running now nearly about 12 months um, and uh, as Christine has sort of already outlined the the project we decided to look at the United Nations and we wanted to see basically where the women went what happened to the women I mean the most obvious would be the UN Secretary General and that there's never been a woman Secretary General but also sort of the other posts where when you see pictures why are there often rooms full of men you know, we know great and wonderful women who've worked in the United Nations, who've contributed to the creation of law and policy in the United Nations, but somehow that critical mass has never developed, and we were interested to see you know, why, why that was. So we wanted to establish a transnational network of different groups because we kind of came to the conclusion initially when we were looking at ourselves that one, there was sort of a lack of academic research on the secretariat and the agencies. So there's been a lot of work outward looking, so on the UN's leadership of feminist and gender issues looking outward, but that there wasn't a vast amount looking inward either historically or contemporary work on that. But we also thought as academics we probably wouldn't have uh, be able to tease out the reasons because of the, the nature of it being an international organization. So we thought it would be important to have civil society work with the United Nations, people in the United Nations, both current and former staff, but also state delegations because very often the UN is battered for not achieving all these things, but without the uh, member states actually pushing for it and agreeing to it as an agenda, it's not going to get anywhere. So we wanted to harness that expertise to bring them all together because ultimately we decided that in leading on issues of gender equality, on issues of women, on issues of women in peace, women in the workplace, um, women in uh, 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 um, how could an organization that in, if you look inwardly, wouldn't meet the standards that it requires of states, how would it translate that legitimacy? How do you have legitimacy to call on states to change the way that they have allow women to work, with their access to education, etc., if you yourself do not necessarily fill all those ideals? So in particularly with goal number five, the sustainable development goals and the many sub-goals there and the really critical important role that the United Nations plays in the sustainable development goals, we felt it was, it was a good moment at the start of the sustainable development goals to start asking those questions around legitimacy. Um, we also, as, a, so we're, as an academic, we wanted to build a sustainable network as well. So we, we try to have a real mix of people with different interests and at different career levels because really one of the... Um, important is that, as, as Christine's already mentioned, that you have these moments where things happen, but then so often they fizzle out. And it was about creating that sustainable, constant idea of working towards um, change within the organization. So our questions were, you know, what are the current obstacles to gender equality at the United Nations? Why have all those targets been missed? Why doesn't it, why doesn't it happen? Why does the inequality in and itself 
remain a problem that is sometimes highlighted. I mean, the current Secretary-General has been very proactive since he took on the role and when he was actually going for the role in, in mentioning gender equality. And then asking about what that impact would be is on, on development. Um, there are some key questions and issues about, for instance, what we mean by gender. And this crosses a very important activist idea and academic idea because, you know, about queering ideas of categories of gender and of sex, but also the idea of trying to get something done. So if you're trying to work with the charter, you're trying to work with member states, you're trying to work with an organization versus challenging ideas around sex and gender. So that academic agenda of what you want to do and then the actual proactive of actually trying to bring about change and the types and, and questioning that and questioning compromise and questioning how it is you go about that kind of level of advocacy. Also asking about what, what constitutes gender parity versus equality. Are, are numbers what's important or is there something more than numbers? Um, what does gender look like within the United Nations? So we're looking at the policies and structures they have, how, how is sex and gender manifested in internal employment policies? Also looking at other organizations. So, you know, who's been successful? You know, is the IMF successful? Is the World Bank successful? Is the WTO successful? No, you know, not really, but in certain areas they might be. So sort of looking at, but also looking at big, I mean, it's looking at other corporate organizations. So we have people from the International Labour Organization who've been really interesting in talking about the types of policies that they would advocate for a state or for a corporation that wanted to fix a gender inequality problem. So where can you find lessons? What works? What doesn't work? Because it is, the United Nations is, is in a unique position. It doesn't have, you know, there's no employment law. There, there isn't any outside structure there that you can go to as an employee. So when the, all the things that you would naturally think you would do as an employee if you had a problem doesn't really exist in the same form of infrastructure. So, of course, when you're taking lessons from other places, you have to keep in mind the particular body that you're working with. But also, how does national cultures feed in? How does ideology fit in? How does law? I'm a lawyer, so I'm always interested in how the law works or doesn't work to help resolve. And looking at how all, you know, what is the organizational culture within the United Nations? You know, does it, how does it vary between the secretariat and the agencies? How will it vary between being an expert coming in on a very limited contract versus being in somebody going in for a 20, 30 year long career? What structures exist? What's the variance? And, and um, Rose is going to talk a little bit about that as well. Um, looking at those internal structures and looking also at the collection of member states. What member states are on board? What member states aren't on board with pushing for gender equality? Who, you, who, who, who would fund, for instance, with a focal point for women? Who funds it? Which is the organisation which is supposed to help within the Secretariat. So sort of trying to tease out these, these kind of questions, bringing groups of people together with different kinds of knowledge to try to answer those questions. So this is a very brief timeline of, of, of what we're, we're talking about. So League of Nations uh, Covenant Article 7 um, said that their men and women could equally apply to work in the Secretariat of the League of Nations. That was really significant because the Foreign and Commonwealth Office didn't allow women to be diplomats until the 1950s. So the fact that happened in 1918 was quite, or 1919, was quite revolutionary. Women did work in the League of Nations, not a vast amount, but women did work, did have leadership, did bring about change, were, were significant. Um, then you get the Charter, the Preamble, Article 1.3, Article 8, and Article 101. Um, 
so again, that was those, the insertion of both the Covenant and the League of Nations were led by women. There were feminist activist women who insisted in the inclusion of those articles guaranteeing the access of women to both or those organisations. So we have women to thank for the fact that women are mentioned in these. So you can, women are always there. It's not that women have been absent. It's that they are, they are there. Um, you get various General Assembly resolutions. Christine's already talked through the various different targets that have been set. Um, I, the reason I highlighted seminals, I, I look at, I'm going to show you a bunch of statistics that I got from the report on the status of women in the United Nations, and they refer to the Beijing Declaration as seminal, which I think is a very interesting use of a word uh, when you're talking about women. Um, in 1998, you have the creation of the Focal Points for Women, which um, has had, I would say, limited success, but some success and needs rejuvenation. And then you've got various targets which were hit and miss, uh, hit, or not hit at all, sorry, and missed. Um, then you get things like the UN system-wide action plan. And very recently, we have General Assembly Resolution 7133 for 50-50 by 2030. Um, of course, the problem with setting that 50-50 target over and over again is the more times it's missed, the less people believe, which is, which is an ongoing problem, even if you are very committed, if you keep promising a thing and not delivering it. Um, I'm going to go through, so I'm just going to, at this point going to kind of give a state of play so that you can see what it's actually like. When I, I've given this presentation before, about six or eight months ago, um, you know, people have heard this one before, and I went and I thought, oh, well, I'm going to have to do this PowerPoint again. And then I went and I looked up, and the Secretary General had released a report since. And I thought, oh, I'll just use those. And I went, actually, they're for, it's the same data. It's the same data because it's from the same year. But actually, the statistics are slightly different. And why I'm raising it, it's not a conspiratorial thing. It's just two different people did it. But two different people did you looked at the same statistics and generated the same graphs and ideas twice within the one organization, which to me suggests a lack of coordination, a lack of people talking to each other. That if, that's a duplication of effort and a duplication of work, um, which I think partially explains a slight element of what's going on about who's talking to who. So this is, these are statistics are the most up-to-date you can get from the United Nations, and there is a serious problem with getting information and data um, and various different places you find different bits of information because you get it all over the organization. Um, so the, the P1 is, and these are the, the professional sites, so there's a whole other category of people, but this is the professional side. And you can see that at the, at the bottom, P1, there are more women. You get to the top, the women have disappeared. So there is a serious leaky pipeline. Women are lost somewhere in the system. And I'll show you um, another graph. It's not, this isn't, it's not that there's been more women in the last 10 years. There have been more women at the bottom for quite a while. But so this, leaky, this isn't, oh, it'll trickle up. That's not, that hasn't happened. The trickle up effect that often is relied upon has, has not happened. Um, but there is variance. So this is the secretariat versus the system. Because we are talking about a huge body with a vast amount of staff and different parts will have different issues. So... What I think is interesting is that the bottom, um, the Secretariat does worse, but actually on the leaky pipeline, the Secretariat seems to manage to keep more people. So I'm trying to tease out why, well, how does, what, what, what policy does it have that does slightly, slightly better. Um, of course, it is member states. Geographic representation is an important part of Secretariat recruitment. So where women come from, and you can see there is variance between 
um, different regions and how many women from those regions are recruited into the organization, which is also from an intersectional perspective about who's visible, who's there, who are role models, who do women see working in the organization that make, want, make them want to apply and join. Um, this is a 10-year trend, so as you can see for the last decade, nothing much has has changed there at any of the levels. There's a little, little variance at the P1 level, but because of the P1 level, you're talking about a very limited number of people. A few people coming and going can make, can make quite a difference. Um, these are promotion, and you can see again, this just sort of illustrates the leaky pipeline. Um, and again here, I just wanted this very last slide before I finish up, and this sort of just lead into what Rose is going to talk about. But there is huge variance, the policies across the organization. And if you just, that very first one, 89% of, of the organizations have a sexual harassment, assault, or exploitation. You're like, okay, 89%. But that means 11% don't. There is no policy on what happens if you are sexually harassed. Nothing. There is no policy. And that's quite, quite striking. So the network is about looking at this, saying, you know, there's a new Secretary General now, there's, there's momentum, what can, what can we see, the what are the problems, and what can we now do to fix those problems? How can we sort this situation out? How can we make it better? How can we make the United Nations the we, the peoples, that the horatory language suggests it ought to be? That's it. Thank you. Thank you. As you see, it's a bit of a squash yeah. <laughs> Cozy, cozy. Great. I'm out. Okay, Rosalind, thank you. So, thank you, Eva, and over to Rosalind. Great, thank you. Well, thank you so much to LSE and the Center for Women, Peace, and Security for this opportunity to speak. It's an honor to be a part of this panel. I'm going to share some background about a research project that we did called the UN Mapping Project to further the work of the UN Gender Network that Aoife has just described. This was research that we undertook this summer in order to map out the gender equality policies across all UN bodies. Now, as we know, there is no one single universal policy for the entire UN. So it's not like you can go to a UN web page, find the Human Resources Briefing book, download it, and have it right there. Instead, we had to adopt a drill-down approach to do a comprehensive assessment of each body individually and in-depth. So we examined each entity's gender data and policy so that we can compare them across the board and see what the entire landscape looks like. In order to do this, we did use the pro bono resources of law firms and our interns. So we had 21 volunteers working simultaneously on this research over several weeks this summer. And what we did was we created a standard template form to gather data on various indicators. So what were these indicators? Well, these issues included indicators on general policies, including gender and diversity. Are there monitoring mechanisms in place to see how things are functioning? Is there any use of special measures? We also looked at hiring, and specifically recruitment and appointment policies. What do the early career policies look like? And what does the recruitment of underrepresented groups look like, as well as the recruitment of senior staff? 
We also looked at policies that are in place once women are at the UN. This included harassment and discrimination policies. And Aoife touched on that in her presentation, talking about how only 89% of these bodies have these in place. And within that, we looked at what kinds of policies are in place for whistleblowers and for anti-retaliation. We looked at facilitative policies, including parental leave, breastfeeding, and childcare, as well as surrogacy policies. And what was in place for career advancement for women? This might include training and development, as well as mentoring and coaching. And then finally, we also looked at separation policies. What is in place to look at why women are exiting the UN and at what stage? So we are still in the process of analyzing our findings, so tonight I'm going to provide more general preliminary findings of what we found. So first, let me begin with overall impressions. And I want to start by commending those bodies that were undertaking efforts to address these gaps. Because the research did show that some UN bodies had good awareness and responsiveness about their gender equality policies. And some entities that knew that they lacked adequate policies were undertaking great efforts to adopt them and set concrete goals and deadlines. For example, one major UN body created a specific position, a legal and policy officer in human resources, to better to respond to gender inequity matters. Another body actively sought out and listened to employees' concerns and surveyed their needs. And these employee responses indicated that they wanted on-site and closer childcare. So when that childcare facility became available, that body did notify all of their employees. But as we did this research, there was a glaring challenge almost across the board, and that was the accessibility of information. The information was not readily available across the bodies, across all the different UN sites. So we had to be very, very creative in how we located this information. In some cases, the website simply did not have it available to outsiders. So we don't know if it was available if you logged in, but we do know it was not available and transparent to anybody coming to visit that site. Other cases, it was simply not easy to find on the UN webpage. And in fact, we had better success by Googling it and finding it via a circuitous route that took us back to the UN webpage. But we wouldn't necessarily have found it by starting on that webpage in the first place. We did use communications with UN personnel, and some of them were responsive and willing to share their policies with us. Others were busy, um, or else they shared concerns that they did not feel comfortable sharing their internal policies. So what this matter of accessibility suggests is a lack of transparency. So that's one flag I want to bring up, because how are we going to hold the UN accountable if we can't access those policies in the first place? And second of all, it also brings up the issue of recourse for employees. Because if you are an employee in a remote and a small office looking for this information, how can you access it? At the same time, I do want to highlight that this challenge was not across the board, and some UN bodies made their policies easily available and accessible on the website. So that leads me to the other point I want to set out. 
and that is the findings I share tonight are by no means a blanket summary, because for everything we'd find on one side of the issue, there was often the counterpoint that, well, another body does it a different way, or they do it better. So when I highlight challenges this evening, please note that it's not across the board, and there are good practices in place by other bodies. So first, I want to touch upon the overall gender equality policies. Like I mentioned, there is no universal gender equality policy that encompasses all of the issues that I just mentioned across all the bodies. But at the same time, when we found that those entities that replicated and used other policies, such as the Secretariat's policies, we found that a gap actually emerged in that duplication because it ended up being wholesale incorporation without modifications that might be needed. And so there was a need that emerged to adapt those policies to be more specific to the context and the region. So this is something that we can look into further. In addition, we also found an issue with the consistency with UN standards. For example, the World Health Organization recommends breastfeeding infants for up to two years and beyond, but some UN bodies reflected policies that were supportive of breastfeeding for only up to one year. So again, more in-depth analysis will reveal if there are other areas where we see such inconsistencies with UN standards themselves. Second, we found a need for greater enforcement and implementation. Some policies tended to be more aspirational because they lacked specificity. The gender goals might be vague or non-existent. And in fact, we saw some tendencies not to state specific gender targets, but to use softer language, like find a balance for hiring underrepresented populations. The policies were also at times vague. For example, one policy prohibited discrimination, which is great, but it did not provide any definitions. There was no description of the recourse for that person or a description of prevention efforts. So it lacked the details and the procedures that could truly give the policy teeth. And similar with the lack of target goals, we also found policies that lacked specific deadlines. Other times they lacked guidance or directives for implementation, leaving that responsibility with individual departments to come up with their own implementation plan to make those policies a reality. I want to recognize that there were offices that did have good detailed policies on discrimination and harassment with definitions, prevention and remedies, monitoring, as well as the creation of bodies such as prevention boards. So this was not across the board and for all the challenges that I highlight, there were good practices in place by other bodies. So next, I want to move on to three specific areas that are addressed um, from the point of hiring to when the employees actually within the UN, which includes harassment and discrimination, as well as facilitative policies. We did find many positive um, aspects about recruitment. There were early development opportunities to lift young professionals up in the pipeline early. For example, one body was giving scholarships for women from specific regions to attend trainings on the very issue on which it works, which was disarmament. There were also positive policies to keep female applications in the pool longer. Some bodies would actually keep the female applications for up to three years and the male applications for two years. There were also very proactive efforts to get diverse people at least into the front door. 
One body required that diverse individuals be shortlisted for all vacancies, and if that person happens to be passed over, there needed to be a written justification. But nevertheless, policies could benefit from more proactive approaches. Some of these policies were still entrenched in negative prohibition language, like a prohibition against discrimination based on sex, instead of a more positive policy that actively promotes and advances the recruitment of women. And as we know, female representation does drop off at more senior levels. So we did see that some bodies have added in succession plans to fill positions with expiring terms at those senior levels so they can more actively recruit female staff. In terms of harassment and discrimination, some bodies did have very strong policies to address sexual harassment with step-by-step -step protocols. But others lacked the necessary detail on these procedures, including at times how to even initiate a claim on sexual harassment. And what was of grave concern was that some bodies actually used informal conflict resolution processes to handle claims of sexual harassment and discrimination, which is unlikely to result in any documentation and does not guarantee consequences. We also looked at various facilitative policies, um, and we found that there were policies in place, but there were still gaps that made them truly effective for all women. So I'm going to use the example of accommodations made for breastfeeding mothers. Those accommodations were available for women at the office, but there was oftentimes a gap for women who travel because there were not always subsidies or childcare arrangements made when they traveled for business. I'm going to, in the interest of time, move on and uh, address the issue of monitoring. Because monitoring is absolutely needed at every stage to evaluate the needs and the outcomes. It helps us understand how the policy is working in implementation. So, for example, there was one body that did have a child care policy, but actually between the years of 2012 and 2015, only four employees took advantage of that policy. So what's going on there? Monitoring would help us answer that question. There is monitoring that is happening by third parties. These might be NGOs, individual researchers, including as well as staff unions. And these were excellent resources for this project and helped us fill in many roles, uh, questions. But of course, not all bodies have this independent monitoring happening. So to conclude, I just want to outline four outcomes that we are hoping to see from this project. First of all, we are planning to complete the analysis of our findings, look for patterns and outliers, explanations why that is happening, promising practices, and of course the gaps. We will feed our research findings into the recommendations for the UN Gender Network to promote greater accountability and transparency. We will be making the results from this research mapping project publicly available. And I hope that this will lead to further research down the road so that we can drill down further into the gaps we see from this mapping so we can understand what are the barriers to adopting a gender equality policy in the first place. When those barriers are in place, what are the challenges that prevent them from working effectively? And how can we remedy those kinds of gaps? So thank you so much, and we look forward to sharing with you fully the findings in the near future. Should I? Thank you. <laughs>
Sharma. Thank you, Navi. <laughs> Thank you very much. So we've heard from two academics. Now you're hearing from a practitioner, and I hope to share with you some of the inside stories. Um, Thank you very much uh, the, uh, for inviting me. I think I've traveled a long way here. I wish I had better news to deliver. Uh, so let me remind you, the United Nations is a body of governments. So they function like a government. National governments finance the U UN, and so they own and influence its output. Individuals working at the UN are regarded as holding the status of public civil servants. The se so when I say Secretary General, I mean Ban Ki-moon because I served six years under him. So Ban Ki-moon told me um, that he is constrained, his office is so political, that I, as the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, had an independent mandate and, and he encourages me to go all the way. When we had the Durban Review Conference on racism, both Ban Ki-moon and I criticized President Ahmadinejad. I can't pronounce his name, you know who I mean. <laughs> Ahmadinejad, yes. Uh, because he used the, the forum to criticize Israel and call it names. So we went public and uh, in turn criticized him. Um, so uh, Ban Ki-moon was really uh, uh, criticized by governments formally on, uh, on that he, did, he was a civil servant and had no right to criticize the head of state. They came to me as well, and I said, this is my mandate. Show me where it says I can't criticize the head of state. Um, and, and this is what we confront all the time, this uh, notion that this is... a uh, a government, do you find women in governments? Not in this country, I don't think. Maybe the Nordic countries, maybe Rwanda. So that's the same pattern um, that governments operate here. The, the greater majority of senior management posts are held by former government personnel, including heads of state, former ministers and ambassadors, for instance, the current SG, is a former Prime Minister of Portugal. Uh, his predecessor, Ban Ki-moon, was a former Foreign Minister of South Korea. So with the exception of Kofi Annan, who rose through the ranks of UN staff, the uh, Secretary Generals are all former government officials, and they bring the mentality of politicians and the traditions of government to the way the UN is run, and they ensure that the UN structures function like a government. And that means hierarchy is sacrosanct. You don't challenge the head. It's just like the minister listens to the uh, head of state or, or uh, head of government. This is the way the expectation at the UN. The ministers are appointed by uh, the head of state or government and they're accountable to him. And since they come from government, they are acutely political in outlook, and with a few exceptions, all governments are dominated by men, and where there are very few women, this is replicated at the UN. And so my premise is that women are excluded and rendered invisible because of the structure of the United Nations. 
Um, I was at many meetings. So there was a recent USG appointed, and he came from Latin America. And when he had an opportunity to speak, he said how surprised he was because he felt he could bring his own staff from his country. After all, he says that that's what we do in government. Uh, when Obama was elected president, he said, did he keep Bush's staff there? No, he brought his own staff. And the Secretary General joined in and said, yes, you know, he asked for letters of resignation from the staff when he came on board, and he was shocked. They were talking about their entrenched right and their contracts and so on. And so in very many instances, I felt coming from civil society, trained as a judge, respecting the rule of law, how different it is when you have a representative coming from civil society experience uh, because amongst them they could not understand that staff had rights and were objecting to each undersecretary general bringing in their own staff. At one point, the uh, member states informed Ban Ki-moon that they were cutting the budget by 200 million. That's a huge amount. The secretary general said it's, if, it's, if there's one thing that caused him sleepless nights, it's that pressure of a cut of 200 million. And so he asked all of us to reduce our staff by 20%, just across the board, 20%. And he said to me, Margaret Chan of World Health Organization has, has carried that 20% cut, why aren't you? And I said, well, we're already short-staffed. If you come to my office now in Geneva, you will see staff working uh, at 3 in the morning trying to catch up. So we are, I can't do a 20% cut. I was heading a human rights office. I'm trained as a judge. I have to respect the rights of staff. But I did go back, call a meeting of, of staff association, and said, I told the Secretary General that you people are working until 3 in the morning, and he's coming over for a visit, so can some of you stay late? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I see the fact that the UN is a body of governments as the reason for the exclusion of women, and so it has to be addressed structurally. Most do, do not come from government and are stereotyped, that's women in particular. They are stereotyped as non-conformist, as a challenge to the establishment and states, that they are feminists committed to change, and so often the questions during the job interviews scrutinize the applicant's capacity to fit in. Will she be a team player? Will she rock the boat? Um, so these are some of the attitudes, prevailing attitudes, to keep women out. So I just said rock the boat. Now, I had already served as a lawyer, a judge, international judge for many years when I was interviewed and received this call from Ban Ki-moon that he was going to recommend me for the position of UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. That was in 2008. And then I received a call from the Undersecretary General who handles Ban Ki-moon's office. And he said to me, I didn't know him and he didn't know me, but he said to me, 
that they have been approached by the Secretary of State of the United States. Later, I was told it's Condoleezza Rice. And she was very concerned about my views on reproductive rights. And she was very concerned that I will influence my office with, with these ideas of mine. And so this USG told me, we have given her an assurance that you will not do that. But can you just give us an undertaking in writing and just send it to us? We won't use it. We'll just keep it in the drawer here. Um, so you can imagine my surprise. And of course, I refused to do that. Um, so that's it. You have to be a team player if you want to be promoted and so on. The idea that the personnel serving the UN should reflect the diversity of geography and gender in society has gained traction slowly, and now with the Secretary General's new policy on addressing gender parity in hiring practice, uh, we hope that it would advance further. The initiative acknowledges that where one sex is underrepresented, the achievement of a balance must be affirmatively addressed. So Secretary General Ban Ki-moon appointed during his term 12 women to under Secretary General positions, including a position of head of a peace mission for the very first time, including the head of UN security for the first time. And so these 12 positions had previously for 65 years been occupied by men consistently. And, and how did he do this? He did it by insisting that when the interviews were over and the final list of recommended candidates is brought to him for him to decide that, that there be names of both men and women. Or at a minimum, there should be at least one woman. What does that tell you? That once there is political will, there is a process in place to advance the women. We don't need any new processes. We need the political will uh, to address a grave injustice, which is this gender imbalance. Uh, and, and that's been accepted. The woman in charge of UN security knew her job. Challenges to appointments come from governments as well. Representatives... Uh, of uh, staff representatives often approach their own countries, and so we get a lot of pressure from governments um, to hire personnel from their country. Uh, I myself had a case of uh, government in Europe, um, and they put a great deal of pressure on me and on the Secretary General uh, to say that their countrymen should gain a particular high-level post. He was a man. And this particular represent, government representative said, we fund your office and we'll reconsider the financial support if our country person is not put in office. So this is a kind of pressure that all the heads of agencies, including the Secretary General, are under all the time. A lot of interference from states. The other body rearing to get these positions are retiring ambassadors. So they secure their place there rather than go back to their homes. Um, 
Now, if, if we identify this as a challenge, the, the challenge then is the entrenched rights of staff. I mentioned this earlier when this new USG thought that he was in the right if he could bring his own staff from his country. Um, and, and I said, yeah, well, staff have rights here. They have contracts. Some, are, some hold permanent positions, and they have legitimate aspirations for promotions. Staff unions challenge affirmative actions of hiring women or hiring geographically uh, from underrepresented states, and they say that that is grounds of discrimination and violation of their rights. Certain posts are also predestined for certain countries. You've never had a head of the Department of Political Affairs who is not from the United States of America. So that's a given. Certain positions go to certain countries. And OCHA, the Humanitarian Affairs, is always a person from the UK. Peacekeeping, the person comes from France. Legal counsel from Europe. And management is Japan. So, there, so there's that pressure as with certain positions are closed to you because certain governments say there's a tradition that that staff person must come from their countries. So you may ask, so what was my record since I was a manager? What did I do as a manager? Well, when I started, the, uh, in the Human Rights Council, the ambassadors, particularly from the developing world, said to me that they are extremely concerned since human rights is such a sensitive subject and the High Commissioner's Office prepares the reports that are critical of the performance of governments, that they felt I have to address the fact that 64% of my staff came from Western countries, from York. And so my first challenge was to address geography. It was necessary to build trust in human rights as impartial and not Western-dominated and not donor-dominated. I found that not a single field office in Africa was headed by an African, let alone an African woman. So I addressed these concerns and also appointed as heads of office an African woman, a Cambodian woman, and a Chinese woman, all of whom were qualified but so invisible. So by the time I left, the 64% had reduced to 48%. Um, so it is possible if you, have, if you have the political will to do something about it. And we did not um, trespass on any of the rules and regulations of, of the interview process. I just ensured that there was a cross-section of people sitting on these interview panels, and they understood that the member states were concerned about geography and gender. Um, now, we had a pretty good record uh, as, as far as gender goes. It's 50 to 51 percent, so I made sure we were at the 51 percent level. Um, and we were uh, on the higher level positions as well as middle and lower, the high commissioner, woman, the deputy high commissioner, woman, and the, of the three directors, that's a D2, one of them was a woman and continued to be, so I'm very happy that 
I was it. You want me to, you want me to stop now? Two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I have to confess that I did, I was asked to play a role in grading the applicants uh, for the position of High Commissioner for Human Rights when I was leaving, so my successor. And, uh, and I said they are all good. They have two women and a man. And the Secretary Generals, the Deputy Secretary General said, no, you have to grade them. It's a very difficult position. Uh, so it's almost like a betrayal to the cause that I felt the male candidate had the qualities and criteria and, and stature to hold that position. So it's, it's one of the things that I continue to feel sorry about. And so these are the positions that would come in when we're trying to address gender balance. Other factors are relevant. You, you really want the best person for a particular job. So to, uh, so to return to my experience, I remain convinced that one of the reasons for exclusion of women from the higher level post is that we do not come from government. Uh, and, we, and they don't trust us to bow to the political imperatives and we are prone to assert independence and adherence to norms and standards, which is actually a plus factor. This is what we expect from civil servants working in international institutions. Um, why do I say that? Because although the United Nations is a body of governments, it is still a norm-based institution. They first started off as an institution to settle disputes between states, but then they developed a huge framework, all the conventions, treaties, it's still ongoing. That's what we are there for, to implement that framework. And this is what I found uh, is the reason why we need more women there um, and respect gender because they are more likely to carry out that mandate. They would take that seriously. When I tried to do that is, for instance, we were discussing peace in Afghanistan. This was a high-level discussion, and I had this full list, and they said, uh, and, and of course those around the room were only talking about immediate peace. Can they just sort out peace and not worry about women's rights and so on? And so my colleagues said, I'm an idealist. They say, you're an idealist, you know? You're asking for too much. Um, and I said, I'm not asking for anything more than what appears in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And all of you should be asking for the, for the same. Um, one more incident is where is, um, there was um, many requests for me to visit Iran in the Human Rights Council and eventually that the uh, foreign minister went to the Secretary General and the Secretary General called me up to say, you know, you know why aren't you going? It's important that you go. And I said, well, I will not wear a headscarf because it discriminates against women. Now the minister said that, no, it's a law of the land. It's exactly like they have laws that you drive on the right-hand side of the road so that's, that's, this, that's what this law is about. And I said, no, everybody has to drive on the right-hand side, men and women, but only women are required to wear the scarf. 
Um, and so I said to the Secretary General, I'm the High Commissioner for Human Rights. I'm upholding standards here. There is no way I'm going to succumb to a rule that forces me to wear a headscarf. And so I didn't go. And you know what he said? He said, now I understand you judges, you stick to principles. Uh, and so we want gender parity, so we will have staff who stick to principles. Thank you very much. So thank you very much. You must all be uh, here. We are at the end of the speeches, and uh, then you'll be able to ask the questions. Um, I'm delighted to be here, and very happy uh, uh, to be part of the panel and see friends. Um, I'm grateful to the LSE Centre for Women, Peace and Security for hosting the event and to Rosa Friedman, um, who is uh, EFA's uh, partner in, uh, in Wonderful <laughs> Things. Um, unfortunately, Rosa is unwell this evening and isn't able to be with us uh, for organising the event as part of their um, United Nations Gender Network um, program. I'm also very pleased to be amongst friends. I see people in um, Darmer that I've worked with, uh, Amnesty International. I've seen people I've worked with in the context of CEDAW, and it's really great to see you all here. And of course, I'm extremely happy to be with my ex-boss, Navi Pillay. Um, I'm also very happy uh, to see that I've been promoted. Um, I was an Assistant Secretary General before I walked into this room, and now I see I'm an Under Secretary General. And, um, and uh, that's excellent. And uh, I'm also happy to see that I've uh, got an honorary doctorate. I don't have a doctorate. Um, <laughs> Uh, but clearly, LSE has given me one tonight, so <laughs> thank you, Christine. Um, so I've been asked to do something a bit different, and it's probably going to really bore you. It's, it's to talk about me, and in fact, it's not something I generally enjoy doing. Um, but I was asked to, and probably Effa doesn't know this, to reflect on my experience as a woman UN staff member who wo worked for a little over 18 years before reaching the mandatory retirement age. Uh, the, we have a mandatory retirement age if you entered at a certain point of 60, another point at 62, and then now 65. Uh, and they're quite young ages of retirement, so you can try to guess what one mine was, but um, it was middle. Um, so I reached it, and then I recently rejoined as the first victim's rights advocate. And I can talk about that if you want to know about it, but that's, I've been talking about it all day, so I'm going to move on to my experience as a UN staff member. It wasn't a typical experience, and often I find when you have audiences like this, people are quite interested to know how this person got into the United Nations, particularly if they look at someone like me and think, how in heaven's name did they let that woman into the United Nations? Um, it's not a typical trajectory. It was my second career. I worked for almost 20 years as a law teacher in various universities, both in Australia and here in the United Kingdom. I spent about 14 years of that time at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And in fact, that's when I met Christine. She reminded re me recently, I met her on uh, 
the tarmac at Goroka Airport in Papua New Guinea. Now, not many people have been on the tarmac of Goroka Airport in Papua New Guinea. We were participating in a conference of law teachers. I'd always been very interested in the UN, but I grew up in Australia. It's a long way away and never thought of it really as a career. Uh, when I was at SOAS, I was approached um, by the UN to act as a rapporteur at an expert group meeting on violence against women in the family. And this was a long time ago. They'd only just discovered that these sorts of things happened. I'd come to its attention uh, because of my work on the topic for the Commonwealth Secretariat. I took up the offer and that began, began my interaction with the UN. I uh, had many years of consultancy work which fed into my publications required of university teachers and became the basis of some of the courses I designed for undergraduates and postgraduates. My first significant output was in fact on violence against women uh, and that I characterized as a human rights issue which I thought was a normal sort of categorization. I was... Um, amazed that everyone thought that was extremely novel and it led to that you could think that there was some uh, state complicity in violence against women, which is the requirement for it being a human rights issue. That led to more demands on my time as the UN went on to develop a declaration on the issue and um, the women's movement reclaimed the vision of the Universal Declaration for Human Rights um, a world in which individuals enjoyed their human rights at the world for women at the World Conference on Human Rights and the Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing. And those conferences put forward a few ideas with regard to strengthening the legal, international legal framework for women, and uh, I was involved in doing some writing about that. And at that point of time, a position became available as the chief of the Women's Rights Unit in the, um, in the United Nations, the one women's rights unit at that moment. There are about three people in that women's rights unit, which shows how many rights there were. I applied, and I applied, and to my amazement, I was successful. Uh, it was a great job, and, and I didn't do any of the usual... Uh, it is done. Most people do seek their government support and so on. I let my government know, but I don't think anything happened because they didn't know much about me, seeing as I was living in England and they were in Australia. Um, I remained in that job for six years, and then I took a lateral transfer to Geneva, where I started working in 2002. I remained there until I retired. I moved up the career ladder extraordinarily slowly. There was no pace at all for 13 years. Um, and I have to be clear about why there was no pace. Maybe I was useless, but also I didn't apply for other jobs. And this is one of the things that really affects everybody in the UN, but I think in particular women. Because to rise, you need another job. You don't rise in post. You need to find a different job that you will apply to. Now, I'm a very, I mightn't be that odd, but I only ever applied for jobs that I thought I could do and for which I was qualified and which I would enjoy and, which I could, and where I could make a contribution. So in other words, I probably sacrificed the ladder to doing what I thought I could do and it took a long time. Um, I hadn't been aware 
when I joined the UN, I didn't do much in the way of uh, exploration as to those sorts of things. I thought it was just like academia. If you remained in it, you could be promoted in post, but that is not the case. Um, and um, when with the promotion also, there's the interaction of not only sex, but geography, and Navi has spoken about that. So there must be geographical representation, and that can be weighed up against um, gender parity in some contexts. I did apply at one point and was very disappointed that I didn't get a promotion in the area and in that particular post. I knew the area very well. Um, I might have been the best candidate in terms of knowing the area very well, but I was lucky because had I got that post... I wouldn't have got the post which I got next, which was the post I liked the most, the chief of the special procedures branch. Um, and then I became the director of a very, very big division. So I had no promotion. I had nothing for 13 years. And then I had the last five years of, or six years of my career, and I suddenly escalated into rapidity. And I don't know why. I think it was because I thought, well, why don't you apply because, and that's the sort of thing women don't do. Why don't you apply? You do know enough, maybe. Um, and probably I did know more than many, but there you go. So reflecting, I was asked to reflect on what would have helped me as a woman in the UN. And all I can say that is in the case of many, uh, most demanding jobs, juggling work and family responsibilities is very difficult and rendered extremely difficult if uh, the job comes with extensive travel and mine came with extensive travel. I have two daughters who were very young when I joined the United Nations and I admit that they experienced neglect but I also admit that that allowed them to make me give them things that otherwise I wouldn't have done, like cats, dogs, <laughs> things of that nature. Um, and um, they, they also, it's, you get into a situation where your, your family becomes rootless, or, and whether roots, I mean, I believe some people in this country, well, certainly one leader in this country maybe said roots are very important, but you do, if you're an international, you don't necessarily have a place in the world. And, and that is bad in some ways, but then it gives you many insights. Um, it's very difficult for spouses, and that is, I think, one of the things that stops women in their tracks. Um, uh, this is an area where the UN should do more. And if your spouse has a... a profession which is different, not expectable of you. You know, you're supposed to have a spouse who's a bit higher in, if you're a woman, aren't you, or something, or has a different sort of thing. It can be very difficult indeed. And there's that persistence of stereotypical attitudes which makes the situation of male partners even more acute. And attitude change is perhaps the biggest challenge professional women face in all workplaces. Uh, the UN has done quite a bit uh, in terms of introducing family-friendly policies, but these can be difficult to take advantage of when work is very demanding and, I must add, interesting. Um, I must say, and I'll finish because I can see my 10 minutes are up, that I'm delighted that in uh, September this year the Secretary-General committed himself, um, well, he committed himself to the achievement of gender equality before gender parity, not, and gender equality is a different thing, um, when he was undergoing his, um, I suppose, rehearsals for the post. Um, and he recently issued a report where he's committed himself um, to gender parity by 2026 um, with uh, system-wide, 
um, and in terms of senior posts, he's committed to reaching parity by 2021. So there's a comprehensive strategy that has to be implemented, uh, and then he's also um, re he has uh, recommitted to the elimination of sexual harassment, which if uh, eradicated will go far to cre create a more respectful workplace. But there are many things that have to be put in place to operationalize the policies. Often there are very nice policies, but the there's the sort of shadow between the rhetoric and the reality. Um, I, I think when you're thinking about the UN, yes, it should lead, but it's, it's made up of member states. And if you look at the situation of member states, I think, what did WEF say last week? It'll take 275 years before women um, earn, the same, uh, earn the same for work of equal value as a man. And that's a long time, really, when you're thinking about it. With respect to greater support, um, more support, encouragement, and monitoring from more senior women uh, would have been very helpful, but Navi was a great role model. I tried myself. Um, I have, there is someone here who is in OHCHR. She might be able to say she didn't try at all. Um, but I tried myself always to encourage women uh, to pay attention to the pressures that they were under, particularly if they had um, children, if they lived in... And it's not as well-rewarded a... Certainly at the junior levels, it's not as well rewarded a um, career as you might think. And if you have to live in an expensive city, for example, and look after children, um, it can be very difficult indeed, and particularly if your spouse has to live elsewhere. Or, sadly, your spouse cannot tolerate um, being not without a job and uh, you lose him or her in translation. Thank you. Thank you, um, Fel. First, thank you to all four panellists for some very different views, you know, the academic and the sort of internal inside story, as it were, from the United Nations. Um, we only have about 12, 15 minutes. So uh, if people would like to ask questions, can you please keep them very brief and to the point and say who you are first. So, yeah, let's go to the back. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Chinkin. My name's Professor Andrew McLeod. Uh, don't boo, I'm from King's College. Um, Professor Chinkin, it's good to see you again. Uh, I studied IHL under you at Southampton many, many Did? moons ago. <laughs> and uh, we won't say how Not long. Too many moons ago, yeah, exactly. come on. <laughs> and Dr Pillay, I was a senior representative for the Resident Coordinator's Office in Philippines, and we did a lot of work together in 2008 and 2009. Uh, my question is uh, to Dr Connors, if I can continue that honorific, if I may. Um, the... The issue of sexual exploitation and abuse, including child rape, is a very important issue, and that's why you've been appointed to this role. The Secretary-General said at the high-level panel of sexual exploitation and abuse on the side of the last General Assembly meeting that the problem of sexual exploitation and abuse and child rape isn't just one of peacekeeping, it's one of the broader United Nations system and, indeed, larger outside of peacekeeping. So, two-fold question. One, where does he get that data from and how big is the problem? And two... Is sexual exploitation and abuse, including child rape, within the scope of duties as defined by the International Convention on Privileges and Immunities uh, for UN experts, and mission, uh, experts on mission and officials? And if so, will the Secretary-General waive that immunity for criminal and civil cases to be able to hold UN officials to account? 
Okay, um, another question. We'll, we'll take two or three and then sort of come back. So here. Hi, um, my name's Claudia. I'm a master's student here. My question isn't quite as intricate, um, but we've spoken about a lot about how the UN can lead, and I suppose I want to ask a slightly cynical question on... I'd like to ask you why it's important that the UN does it. Obviously, you know, it is important, but why we continue to expect a lot from an organization that quite continually lets us down on, <laughs> on a lot of fronts. So why, when we're so used to this kind of situation, is it important that the UN continues to strive forward? Why do we go on hoping? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, yes, here. Yeah. Hi, my name's Claire. I'm an independent gender consultant. Um, I have a sort of technical question referring back to the how. Um, we've talked, you've talked a bit in various presentations that all the different agencies have their own um, uh, policies and mandates. Um, I'm used to working in the humanitarian sector where, a, where UN women are supposed to leave the normative agenda and often left out. I don't think it's surprising a mission of UN Women at this stage, building on uh, the other things about being, having been let down. I wondered how will the UN be able to lead this? Thank you. Um, yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Skirma bennett just a member of public. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, my question is, what is the UN doing to encourage more sort of intersectional people into their ranks? Um, it was touched on very uh, briefly. Um, so, yeah, simple question. Thank you. I'll take one more in this thread. Yeah. Hi, my name's Grace. I'm a master's student at Reading University. Um, my question is in, in regards to um, governance of the UN. So, Navi was speaking about how um, it's like secretary generals or people who come into specific positions did usually come from member states' governments. So if there's already, I guess, um, a mentality, a specific political mentality around how they would govern the UN, how does that change then if the UN is supposed to be not necessarily... Um, I mean, it is governmental, but how does it change in regards to bringing your own sort of political ideas into the sort of organisation that the UN is? I don't know if that makes sense. Yep. Okay, a range of questions there, ranging from sexual exploitation and abuse, uh, through governance, through diversity, uh, more generally. Um, why do we go on hoping that the UN <laughs> will, um, will lead um, in some way or another? So, anybody want to volunteer on starting? Um, Aoife? Uh, maybe if you could speak, yeah. Uh, why do I hope? I think I hope because... I know there are more women out there like Jane and Harry and we, we need them to be there and we need them to be there from early on in their careers and we need them to, to, to work and that's partially how as well but because I can see what women when they get in what they do and that's what gives me hope women and male allies you know the men who made sure that these women were appointed that's what gives me hope is because I, I can see what can happen when you get the people in and you can see where they lead. And if you look back historically, at, you know, getting, getting women mentioned in the Charter in the League of Nations, that was women 
banging on the door, making sure they were heard. Women like Jane and Abby, and that's that's what I that's that's what gives me hope. Um, and also, uh, also, I think that's how how you change the mentality. That's how you change organisational culture, is by is by doing that, is by make having leaders in there. Um, very briefly on intersectionality. Uh, it, uh, Intersectionality beyond geography and making sure people from various different countries. I, I, I mean, you might know, but this better than my understanding is that's pretty much. Do they worry about class or um, non-binary genders yeah. and sexual orientation? UN Globe has kind of very recently been very public, but previously UN Globe wasn't public at all. So I would say there is loads to do on gender. There is masses to do on intersectionality as well. And I, and I think they're both quite interlinked as well with it comes to culture and hope and change. Hope he changes things. Is this on? Um, should be. I'll turn it on. Yeah, so, so, you remember what I said? The UN started as a body of governments to settle their disputes. What they didn't reckon on is civil society who pushed and pushed till the UN is now a norm-based society. There's always a pushback on the gains, and this is why we have to remain there. There would not have been a post of High Commissioner for Human Rights had it not been for civil society. They demanded because they said there's all the rhetoric, there's a framework, how do we get states to implement their obligations? So we want the office of a, a high commissioner to be created. And as a result, you have the Human Rights Council, the high commissioner, the special procedures, all busy uh, critically examining the human rights record of states in public with the presence and contribution of NGOs from those countries. So these mechanisms that are there in place have all come about because of civil society. And it's not because governments woke up one day and decided to be more accountable. That's why we need to be there. And this ties in with the governance issue that you raised. Um, that's what troubled me the most, that almost all the people working for the UN are, come from government. I hear now more and more after Trump, and we have Zuma in my own country, that after this, I hear more and more voices of civil society saying governments have failed us, and it's now um, the work of civil society to take over. So putting we the people back into the United Nations and, and, and to address this. Why should they continue recruiting only from governments just because that was the tradition for the last 70 years? We have to challenge that. Okay, so I'm left with a little question about, uh, <laughs> which is not exactly uh, two minutes. <laughs> pertinent to. Uh, as you will know, the definition of sexual exploitation and abuse in the context of uh, uh, the Secretary General's plan, uh, new strategy is with respect to that conduct which is perpetrated by UN peacekeepers um, and by um, non uh, non-UN peacekeepers but soldiers under a Security Council mandate and UN personnel, civilians. Um, with regard to uh, UN peacekeepers and troops, generally you will know that uh, um, 
their immunity has nothing to do with the Secretary-General. It's in the hands of the troop-contributing countries and the, uh, in the hands of where those troops come from. With respect to UN personnel, uh, UN personnel are not immune from criminal, uh, criminal uh, prosecution, and uh, that will be within the context of uh, the legal counsel with respect to that particular case. In terms of the statistics, uh, the statistics are available. Um, the most re well, there were some recent ones that came out last um, last Friday. Um, a, a quarterly statistic um, um, with respect to uh, to this conduct was released. Um, the, it's likely that there is under-reporting, um, but there is um, conduct of this nature within the UN personnel, and worryingly, but outside our remit within um, uh, NGO personnel and other personnel. Um, this is something that requires serious... I mean, it, it is interlinked as well, because, of course, um, these are issues of power, these are issues of inequality, and these are issues which... Um, essentially indicate that there is no real acceptance of uh, a gender approach. And gender parity is one element in a gender approach. So, so keep watching this, and, and my remit is with regard to the victims, and uh, of course I will be very, very, and I'm very happy to meet you. I've, I've heard about you and so on. Um, so it, it's very good to have uh, events like this because I can meet all the people who I'll be able to work with in the future. Uh, in terms of intersectionality, I think you would be interested in seeing that um, in terms of the gender parity approach, those policies, and, and we're talking, it's very difficult to say, you know, sort of you're not going to be recruiting on intersectionality, essentially, um, but the policies with regard to family-friendly issues, with regard to spousal employment, with regard to partners and so on, will apply as much as they can do because, of course, we've got the interference of the, well, the states. We work for the states to a certain extent, and, and they govern what is adopted uh, will apply irrespective of the nature of the family that we're talking about. Do you want to add anything? Sure. I'll just build on the responses to the how does the UN lead, and I'll just boil it down to a few key points. First of all, adopt a policy and make that mandatory so that all of these bodies actually have gender equality policies in place, and there should be consultation involved so it is as best of a policy as it could possibly be. There should be specificity involved as well with a proactive approach that lists specific goals and deadlines so it's not just vague, soft language that leads far too much to discretion. We also want to make these policies available. Um, this is to promote transparency as well as accessibility for all of the staff and personnel. And finally, as I ended with my presentation, to ensure that there is some sort of monitoring mechanism in place so that that policy can be a living policy that is continually under reform to be responsive to the needs of the staff and personnel. Thank you. And unfortunately, it's right on 8 o'clock, um, so we've got to conclude. Just a couple of sort of final announcements. First is that the next event for the Centre for Women, Peace and Security is on November the 30th. Um, again, um, everybody is welcome. And it's the London launch of the index on countries' performance with respect to women, peace and security. So that's on November the 30th. Our website, of course, um, you can always look at. And um, before I finally thank the panel to say that there's a reception on the fifth floor of this building 
in the senior common room that everybody is welcome to. And finally, I'm sure you would all like to join me in thanking the panel um, for their great contributions and also all of you for coming and for your contributions. So thank you all.